Welcome to Burning Platforms, the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology's fortnightly exploration of the world of tech and politics. I'm Peter Lewis, Director of the Centre. This edition is a discussion held at the NetThing 2021 Conference on Internet Governance. Joining me are Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and academic Benetta Bravini, author of the new book, Is AI Good for the Planet? As world leaders meeting in Glasgow to thrash out a global agreement to address catastrophic global warming, we'll dive deep into the assumptions that technology will save the planet. But first, our regular roundup of the latest tech news. It's been pretty interesting, isn't it? It's been the week that Facebook's gone meta. Indeed. Um, yeah, it's a rebrand that probably couldn't have happened at a better time for the company and certainly uh, gets everyone talking about the name of the company rather than say what a certain high profile whistleblower has to say about how they conduct their business. Um, I must say the video of uh, Mark Zuckerberg wandering around in his new metaverse uh, wasn't particularly inspiring to me. I found it very bland uh, and I- I'm not sure I'm the only one that isn't particularly animated or excited by the prospect of more virtual meeting rooms after spending, you know, nearly two years in virtual meeting rooms. So I'm not sure whether it's really going to land. I'm very curious to see how this might unfurl, you know, in another six months' time. But I'm not sure. want to stay on the metaverse for a sec? Yeah. Because we we had a bit of a a discussion with an expert in this a few months ago, and it was fascinating, this idea that the next frontier of the digital world will be around virtual and augmented reality. And it does strike me that even these events are the beginning of that journey into something that's a more immersive online experiment um, or experience. Facebook has acquired Oculus. They've got, I guess, best in breed technology to do this. Do you think what he's doing is just chasing a business opportunity or is there a a bigger play here? Well, I think that conversation that we had with Michaela a little while back about the metaverse was fascinating and uh, it's a really useful starting point if you're trying to understand the metaverse. So I would encourage anyone who's listening, if they're interested in this topic, to go back and have a listen because one of the things Michaela says is, oh, you know, we've been talking about the metaverse for 20 years and this isn't particularly new. And I think that's a pretty fair comment. But we also got into there a little bit about the discussion of you know, the control of this space and in particular Facebook's approach to acquiring a company like Oculus so then gets the hardware and rolls it out in a loss-leading way that allows it to dominate the space and to set the framework and the baseline for how we will engage with the metaverse. And there's no real competitors to this, I think, which is what makes it an opportunity for them that's too good to resist. Um, So what I would say is I'm not sure Facebook has purposes other than its bottom line. I mean, this is part of the problem. This is why the company, I think, is in such dire straits and has such low levels of trust from the public, but also increasingly lawmakers, that what they do prioritise above all is engagement, which is about their business model. Their business model is ultimately advertising, but it's based on growth. And that really explains their foray here. The sooner they get in on it, the sooner they can dominate how the the space of their metaverse, so to speak, is going to be structured and who gets to control its development. And I think there they see themselves as making that first foray now to exclude other competitors uh, and hopefully be in the prime position for when maybe some of these things start to get regulated or treated a bit differently. And, you know, you can see this cycle unfolding again where lawmakers, um, you know, public policy advocates are are playing catch-up. Yeah. Um, So they have, though, announced a big 
what seems like a big change up, they're going to stop collecting images. They're saying they're out of facial recognition technology. Do you think this is a real change or what I would call screen wash? Yeah, do you want to explain what screen wash means? Oh, I think it's still, I just want to brand what he's doing. You know, you've got green wash, now we've got screen wash. We're just saying we're good guys and we've got a clean screen. Yeah, I think this is interesting. So people may not have seen this, but Facebook made a comment or put a um, post on their website uh, describing how they're no longer going to use things like automatic tagging of people. So facial recognition technology to identify photos of people across the platform uh, that then allows you to uh, be automatically tagged in photos. I think it was a bit of a self-serving commentary that they provided, which of course is probably no surprise to anyone who's listening. Uh, But they argued that more than a third of Facebook's daily active users have opted in, as they put it, to our facial recognition setting, and that that is going to end. Essentially, they're no longer going to apply automatic recognition to photos when they appear on the platform. Now, I don't reckon a third of their daily active users realise that they'd opted into that program. And so I have a a feeling that this is a proactive move. I don't know whether people will find me cynical, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that they're getting on the front foot, getting rid of a, a program that is likely to attract significant criticism, the more that's learnt about it, and that people don't particularly like or use. The commentary did offer a lot of um, discussion about how this will make it difficult for people who are visually impaired, who may then not be able to identify photos through recognition systems. And I take that on board. That is a, a problem. But I also think there's not sufficient privacy protections for the billions of people who use this program who might be subjected to this facial recognition software, perhaps without their consent as well, or without um, clear knowledge, because they may be caught up in someone else's process. So I I think that is something that we have to balance and think it through. But I don't think that kind of uh, justification put forward by Facebook for it or the implied justification for the original use of the program is particularly valid. I mean, I don't know what you think is behind this, Pete, but my view is, yeah, they're getting on the front foot before something like this gets regulated out of existence. They're not the first tech company to abandon facial recognition technology. You know, Amazon famously has talked about not selling this technology to law enforcement. In some ways, the horse has already bolted with Clearview AI and and the use of Facebook images. Mm. I'm not sure what your thoughts are, though. Look, I reckon it ceases to be useful to them and their business model is changing and there'll be other things to monitor. And if this builds trust as people strap on their Oculus to go into their virtual meetings or virtual playgrounds, then maybe that's part of it. I I also note that Clearview was subject to a, um, a negative ruling by the Privacy Commission this week. Um, Clearview AI is an Australian um, company whose business model is to scrape images off Facebook and then sell them to people that are developing facial recognition technology. And the ruling has said you've got to get rid of all of it, that it's all a breach of privacy. And I'm not sure, you're the lawyer, I don't know what the effect of that ruling is, but maybe we are at this point where there is going to be a disruption of that sense that any photo is fair game. I know our friend and the former Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, has called for a moratorium on facial recognition technology in high impact areas in Australia. And maybe there is also a sense that some of the corporates are getting ahead of this. But I thought that privacy commissioning ruling was interesting as well. Yeah, it is a really interesting ruling. I don't know how you could come to another conclusion because here's an example of a bunch of photos being scraped off Facebook and being used to train a a facial recognition algorithm by a third party. And I think Facebook should have picked that up. That's one of their jobs to monitor behaviour on their platform. And uh, it's sort of not a surprise to me that they got away with it, but it is pretty... um, 
pretty poor that was permitted to happen. So um, the, the findings of the Office of the Information Commissioner was that they had breached the various privacy laws. And then there was a, um, a requirement then that, that Clearview AI, which although it is it was started by an Australian, is actually run out of the United States, uh, delete all the photos that had come from Australia and, and not use this program when it's, it's relying on this information. And I think that is a very difficult uh, thing to enforce against a company that's based abroad. Clearview AI said that they, they operate in the US and that the Australian law doesn't really apply to them, but the commission had dispensed with those criticisms. I did note that there were no civil penalties awarded. And to my mind, that seems a bit disappointing. I do think in these kinds of situations, money really talks. What it, this jurisdiction where companies take data and it might not be particularly harmful, but in, in a direct sense, but there's a collective sense that this shouldn't happen. It reminds me a bit of um, violations of the Fair Work Act, where there might be a workplace condition that isn't provided to all workers. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating and annoying, but there might not be clear grounds for compensation. Sometimes there is. The Fair Work Act has civil penalty provisions where if, every time you breach the act, an employer can be fined essentially a particular amount. And I sort of think we need to introduce this model here, have um, a, the commissioner more actively imposing civil penalties, because I do think money talks. This company's clearly derived its value by essentially stealing people's information, by violating their privacy. It shouldn't be permitted to continue. And, you know, maybe that doesn't necessarily have to um, be a payment of compensation because then that comes with a requirement that you prove that you've, you've experienced harm. Maybe instead it has to be very heavy, heavy civil penalty orders. This investigation, I would note, was conducted with the UK equip counterpart to our commissioner. Uh, and so I'm not sure whether they may end up imposing different kinds of penalties under UK law. But I think that's where we sort of need to head. Of course, if Clearview AI doesn't comply, um, the commissioner does have the right to be able to enforce um, the determinations made. But I do wonder how in practice that works, because, you know, the company is based in the US. They say they no longer provide this service into Australia. Australian Federal Police were sampling it and using it at one point, um, but they've stopped. Uh, so, you know, to that extent, we're a bit vulnerable because we're a market which companies should, can just vacate if they don't like the laws. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's the answer. But to my mind, it still seems to leave the problem sitting there at large and kind of a rightful feeling among people who might have been subjected to this technology that, that that's not been remedied. So, you know, I think we really have to come down hard on these companies because you don't want to, you don't want to offer any kind of practical or implied, um, you know, permission for this kind of thing to occur or, or insufficient penalties, I suppose, is my point. With the penalties, though, it's interesting, some legislative regimes are moving from compliance to a percentage of earnings. And I know that's one of the key bits of the stick behind the GDPR in Europe. But I, I did think it just sort of bounced onto the one other bit that's really caught my attention the last fortnight was the flurry of legislation coming out of Canberra. And we've had um, an online Privacy Act um, recommended. We've got reviews of the privacy laws. We've got online harms working their way through the parliament as well. And we even had a private member's bill from a National Party MP who wanted to basically change the way defamation works in Australia to give um, the, the key rebate really to the e-safety commissioner. So I guess there's, we haven't got time to go into the substance of all that legislation um, today, Lizzie, but what's your general take on this flurry of legislation from a government that would not normally be seen as a reformist government? Yeah. What's going on and is it a step in the right direction or are we legislating ourselves into a hole? 
Yeah, I think it is really interesting. I was talking about this with some staff members from Digital Rights Watch. Is it possible that privacy might become an election issue? Um, because I do think the coalition think they're on a, a winning streak here with taking it active steps to protect people's privacy, to mitigate against harm online. And I, politically, I would say, I'm not sure that the policy that they put forward is always very good. Some of it is good, but, you know, we had a lot of concerns about the um, the, e -safety, the Online Safety Act, I should say, governed by the eSafety Commissioner. And I think there were problems with that legislation. I think there's problems with this legislation as well. There's a lot of it in there about age verification, for example, which I don't think always works as intended and is potentially problematic. But it does work really well for political talking points and makes them look like a, a government that is prepared to take on big tech, um, um, that isn't frightened of these companies and, and is also there to protect children, I think all of which plays to their base really well. So I am curious, do you think it's going to be an electoral issue? Pete, I, I wonder whether this is uh, something the coalition thinks they can score points on politically, even if the policy proposals aren't that impressive. Because I must say, I'm not, I'm not hugely impressed with the drafts that are put out today. I, I, you know, I've got to bury myself in it a bit more because there was a lot that came out last mm. week. But I think we could do better is what I would say. I reckon there is a potential play around protecting kids online. And I know that that isn't your favourite piece of regulation, that the, the expansion of the eSafety Commissioner's um, mandate. The, the, the reason I don't think it'll be a massive issue is I just think that there, there isn't a huge partisan divide on a lot of this stuff. And I, I think particularly with that, I don't think Labor would differentiate themselves on it. I actually think that the fact that we've got a conservative government that is trying to work its way through how to how to um, regulate um, big tech means it it recognises like every other liberal democracy that there are problems that need to be fixed. I just am concerned that it's very fragmented in Australia. You've got different ministries with different parts of the problem. You don't seem to have anyone with the oversight. And if there was one thing that I would love to see as an election issue, it is that both parties sort of agree to, to actually look at this systematically. Like, I think the market impact of um, big tech, there was a systematic review by the ACCC, but then you've got the Human Rights Commission, you've got, you know, the, the Broadcasting Authority, you've got the eSafety Commission. It all seems very fragmented. Surely you need to have a core of knowledge and a centre of truth to have good policy coming out the other end and critically with good consultative mechanisms so that both the internet industry who is this event and the activist world, which is, you know, our world, all have a say in it. And critically also academics, which is probably a segue to bring um, Benedita in. Benedita joins us. Hi. Hi. Hello, everybody. Great to see you. Um, and, and thank you so much for joining us. You know, what a timely book as we um, watch our world leaders try to defer responsibility for um, dealing with the um, existential issues that the world's facing by saying technology will save us. We had, a, we had a great discussion yesterday with people that are working deep in tech, in the internet of things, in um, blockchain, who are very optimistic that technology can save the world. But I think your book provides a counterpoint. So I don't know if you want to give us sort of the, the back cover starting point and then we'll kick the ideas around a bit. Absolutely. Actually, can I just start by picking up on the latest bit of your conversation that was really fascinating about Australia, because I tend to focus on what's happening in terms of communication policy in the US and in Europe. And it's very interesting that the fragmentation 
is very much the case, you know, also in the US and in Europe. And actually, Lizzie, I was looking and I was chatting to colleagues um, yesterday, and it really seems that the Congress in the US is going to go for a children online, you know, kind of protection. And it's going, again, you know, avoiding any kind of, um, you know, like um, re real re restructuring or structural interventions, you know, against the, what I call the digital lords, because I think that actually the term platform is too benign to define them. They are really acting as lords in the context of the digital feudalism, where you know you have this super data extractive ecology, where you constantly you know collect the data, but in a profit-driven way. And I don't need to explain this to you for sure. But actually, it's interesting that Australia is really following on this path of, of trying really to, to fragment also the policy response and the legal response. So having said that, of course, like I think that uh, my book is. Uh, responding, of course, to some of these major issues. And uh, as you have seen in COP26, and I was just uh, um, reading the very excellent uh, roundup by the Australian Institute just now, that just arrived in my, email, um, in my mailbox. And uh, it's fascinating to see that the conversation on technology developments in connection with the Green New Deals and all these amazing Green New Deal packages is completely absent. So in other words, uh, really technology constantly um, has been conceived as the only tool to address all these issues, instead of adopting a more structural intervention, which is actually what we need, for example, towards the digital lords, because we need to be able to apply serious antitrust rules, we need to be able to fragment their business and to say, well, we really need to separate, you know, if you consider also the the platforms that were run by Bernie Sanders, you know, Boston senators, as you know, before the, the elections, they were very serious about trying to separate, you know, this business. And one of the reasons, of course, is that monopolies don't even, don't work ever in the public interest. And it's a very neoliberal framework, this one. I mean, it's not, I'm not arguing for any kind of social democratic intervention here. It's just, you know, the basics. Of but but it, it, it has been, it has been interesting, hasn't yeah. it, Lizzie, watching that? technology will save us and technology you know that, that human history is a story of technology taking us to the next level totally i think it's really interesting benedetta that you raised the point about technology being the answer to climate change because that's certainly scott morrison's view he talks a lot about it not being about tax about technology and i, I do think this is uh, this whole long history of, of uh, humans dominating nature and using technology to cast the world in their own image. Um, so I wondered if you, I didn't appreciate, I must say that that's a broader phenomenon than just in Australia. I just thought that was uh, Scott Morrison's petty attempt to come up with a proposal in advance of the next election that didn't look completely silly. Um, but I wondered, yeah, if you could talk a bit more about uh, what got you started on this particular path, path Benedict, because it's something that I've thought about, but perhaps quite ancillary, and I can choose the general topics of digital rights and freedoms, and I can see how it is particularly central uh, in lots of ways, given the centrality of climate change to almost all political issues. Um, but you've obviously, you obviously caught on to that a lot quicker. Can you tell us how you perhaps got started on this particular path of analysis? Absolutely. So the first issue I had was I want to try to see the way in which myth and myth-making around technology are actually working. So like when you, when you look at the history of technologies, as you rightly said, like you see that anytime we develop a new technology, there was a, a lot of myth and mythological thinking has been connected to these ideas, right? So what happened, and it happened with radio, it happened with television, and of course, radically and really massively, it happened in, seven, in the 70s, in the 80s, and especially in the 90s with the internet. 
Like we had people like Negroponte or Gilder, like in the US, keeping saying, I see a new Athenian era of democracy coming around with the launch of the new internet, with the launch of this new incredible web, you know, for the democratization of society. So these were the statements. And all of this, of course, has been only even more emphasized by the development of the cloud and the internet of things. And I explain why in the book, because in fact, the cloud is nothing but fluffy, is not something that is in the sky, is actually something that is very material and based on metrics and based on cables, very dirty indeed, very dusty. So it's more a pit than a cloud. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, I mean, I, I would say that uh, I think a pit would be the perfect marketing. And I think that actually the best, one of the best marketing efforts of the last 15 years is precisely to call um, data centers, these incredibly dirty you know, places as the cloud. Okay, so this mythical thinking has kept evolving in a fascinating way. Like, and you know, because you are, of course, experts in technology, you see this very, very well happening. And after this, then we moved into the Internet of Things again, very immaterial. So it is as if the materiality of this technology keeps being excluded. So what I did with the book, I started looking at definitions, right? So I said, okay, so what is really AI? Can we look at definitions? And I spent like a couple of years looking at definitions of AI around the US, but even China, I got a translator for that. Europe, of course, so you see a variety of uh, discussions, policy discussions around definition. And very often AI is around it, really like, a, a, like a, the capacity to mimic human, human minds, the capacity to be beating also, you know, our minds and, and therefore being super artificial. And then, of course, AI in this way, interpreted in this way, is capable of sorting out everything. It can sort out capitalism, it can sort out the climate crisis, it can sort out any kind of crisis. Of course, COVID, right? It can sort out anything. And so I thought, okay, so the starting point is we need to redefine what AI is. And I found a very useful definition from one of the very numerous policy papers coming from Europe, which is AI conceived as assemblages and machines and technologies that are actually heavily based on data centers, so cloud computing, algorithms. And I added, of course, the Internet of Things. So now, if you start conceiving AI as infrastructures, machines, assemblages and, and of technologies, then you see that you will gain the materiality. And it's very hard you know, to break down and to defeat a discourse that is so ingrained in our mind mm. because we think as a common sense that AI is this magic wand, right? That is capable of changing everything because we assign to it an immaterial capacity. But the reality is that it's very material and it's actually based on infrastructures. And so that's where, that's where the book really starts. I think that's so interesting because there's a, I did a little bit of research when I was writing my book about um, with, there's a photographer called Trevor Paglin who um, yeah. also may know who he, he, um, has, he does fantastic work. 
Exactly. So he takes photos of the internet as it is in its material reality, which is actually a little bit confronting because you see the transatlantic cable, like he learned how to scuba dive and he went underwater and located it and took a photo. And he also takes photos of data centers and the like, what you're describing. And I do think it is rare that we think about the internet in material terms, that we understand it as cables, as, um, you know, things that take energy to produce, that data centers suck a huge amount of energy, that Bitcoin is about energy generation. I think there's some growing awareness, but it's uh, it's usually thought of as, a, as something abstract rather than something materially real. And one of the things that comes to mind for me is when Elon Musk tweeted um, about how he supported the coup in Bolivia. Um, in essence, the I don't know if you recall this, but he, um, he kind of made this comment because there's a lot of lithium in Bolivia that he's interested in getting his hands on in order to be able to build his batteries. That this guy is supposed to be so futuristic and innovative he's actually really interested in raw materials that go into the products that he make and makes and that's something that we do need to think about as well this material reality gives rise to political consequences and you know tech titans will fall down on a particular side in particular political struggles depending on that and I must admit um, it's it cast it in a new light for me I suppose uh, and I, I do think that is an interesting perspective I mean do, do you agree that also that there's a political dynamic to then the material reality of of the internet and artificial intelligence oh yeah I mean this is really what the book is all about like trying to re um, restart the debate on artificial intelligence and reaffirm the materialities of the technology involved. So, like to get back, for example, to the acquisition of lithium, right? One of the major problems with AI development is the perpetration of data colonialism. Now, we know that um, AI and the development of AI at the moment is highly, highly based on extractions, you know, that is coming, unfortunately, again, from the same countries from the same indigenous communities that they've been deprived for centuries. And this is getting replicated again and again. And the fascinating things about, for example, like making sure that they have access to lithium, making sure that they have access to major resources to build this kind of technology is one of the most relevant topic to be discussed. But the thing is, like, especially with um, artificial intelligence in particular, I think that for me, what really fascinates me um, is the fact that we are dealing and we touch upon all of these issues because we have at least four ways in which it is incredibly detrimental for the, for the planet. The first is that, of course, it relies on data to work. And of course, we know very well um, the extent of the carbon footprints of data centers. I mean, at the moment, they're about, you know, the entire tech footprint in the world is on trajectory to become 40% of the global footprint. 40%, that's huge, and it's already around 10%. I mean, currently, the aviation industry, the entire transportation industry is at about 3%. So these are, these are very important uh, conversations. So AI connected to data center. But then there is the problem of who trains what? So the kind of computational power that is very crucial to be able to train the algorithms. And uh, I mean, if you're interested, I can talk for an hour, half an hour about the most recent studies that have been done to a certain the kind of carbon footprint coming out of training the algorithm. But then there is another issue, which is the one that you touched upon, which is the third one for me and incredibly important, which is like the first, the appropriation of resources, so the material resources that are necessary to build the devices and the Internet of Things and all the AI-powered devices. So battles for resources, 
but also battles for e-waste and e-pollution. So the cost of disposing of these you know, uh, devices is huge as well. And again, data capitalism comes in because all the biggest e-dump in the world are currently in the colonies of the former colonies. So for instance, mm. China uses, Colum uh, uses mainly Cambodia, uh, then you know, the West uses mainly Bangladesh at the moment and South America. And then we pollute this community. This community don't have access to their own resources. And you know, who pays for this? Of course, there's you know, the same uh, small local communities. But then there is another fourth way, which is terrifying. And it's something that I'm, I just uh, become aware um, when I was finishing my book, which is the fact that we are currently, and uh, Peter even earlier mentioned uh, the, the problem of greenwashing, you know, coming out of tech companies. Well, in here, you have huge efforts, huge PR efforts putting together to say, well, we want to reduce our carbon emission, especially of our cloud systems. But the reality is that they're striking and it's the same digital lords of the West, so the usual GAFAM, that are striking new deals to dig harder, so to use AI to be more efficient in digging and extracting oil and gas. So this is a new, a new AI development. And um, I mean, the, the oil industry is gonna touch about uh, and be at about 3 billion in the next uh, 10 years which is, again, something that we should stop immediately. And also, uh, in your work, Lizzie, like also the, the concerns for human rights, we know very well that AI-driven uh, weapons, right, have been already banned. The discussion in Europe about that has been particularly interesting, you know, so we can decide that we ban some technologies. So we could decide that we ban AI to dig better oil and gas, for example. Mm -hmm. So these are the, the discussions that we need to have now because, because of COP26. I mean, we now know, and it's been, you know, evidence in every report and at COP, it was the starting point of COP, that if we don't reduce the emissions by 50% by 2030, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make the 1-5 goal. So when are we going to have this conversation? Can I just throw in, um, and I'm trying to do this on behalf of the panellists that joined us yesterday, whose view were, and I don't want to, I don't think I can do it quite justice, but we we had a, a train of thought that said that these technologies can um, lead to more efficient distribution of energy to use the networks we have better. But then secondly, particularly around blockchain technology, the thesis was that the blockchains follow the surplus energy. So they're not they're not actually creating new demands. They're 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 smart enough with their distributive technologies to go where the surplus is to to power the engines that do the mining now i'm no i'm no expert in this but it, it seemed to be a quite a compelling counter narrative to the technology is burning up all these resources so i don't know if you've got a response to that yeah, I do, because I've been doing a lot of um, book talks in the last couple of weeks, trying really to get this into the debate. And I've been speaking to a lot of engineers and AI developers and also, you know, network developers. And we have long conversations, especially on neural networks, because neural networks, as you know, are the most incredibly, um, the most um, like um, extractive in terms of consumption of energy. And they guaranteed me that, of course, they're trying really hard to make neural networks also consuming less. And uh, they gave me a couple of examples of great achievements and great um, improvements in this area, especially. 
Um, the problem that I was, uh, and, and I had these engineers and it was a great, uh, a great for me, a great result to have engineers agreeing with me um, that it, it's taking a bit too long at this stage, right? So the problem is, it is true that there is a move, especially by tech companies to try to um, consume fewer, car and fewer carbon and therefore like be more sustainable. But the problem is that um, we are still in a situation where globally, the electric, electric grid is based on 64% on fossil fuels. So 64% is still huge. So, you know, Facebook or, you know, Google can tell us, yes, we are doing our best. Microsoft is claiming now that they have a negative footprint, right? But the problem is that they, their data centers are still in areas where we don't even have 64%, we have 95% of fossil fuels based electric grid. So the reason why this discussion is so crucial now is precisely because we need to get them on board. So we need really to show them that, you know, if we want to meet this deadline that we have um, to meet this 1.5, we need to act now on these matters. And we need to make sure really that uh, the production of the electric grid is not based on fossil fuels. So, you know, it's really important that they start um, collaborating on this. But like when I see COP26 and I've been joining debates, you know, in the last six months, I see uh, how silos we are in our conversation. So the tech and communication people, uh, policy people talk in some, you know, uh, governance forum. And then you have the environmental uh, policy forums that don't talk with each other, right? And so it becomes really difficult in an only tech, uh, tech forum to have this conversation without the climate scientists, without environmental policy experts. And I, I think it was great that that thing had a session on sustainability because it's really very it's rare to see this. And um, the other thing that I can, I can see, for example, is that there is an incredible move to trying to make uh, also Bitcoin and blockchain you know, uh, more sustainable. But isn't it fascinating that AI is present in every green recovery packages, but yet there is absolutely no conversation about AI being as demanding as Bitcoin with actually the addition of the other three components that I mentioned. It's extraordinary, mm -hmm. I think. Lizzie? Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think it does return to this myth-making, which I think is an, was an evocative way to start, but I think it is an interesting idea that I hadn't, thought about in those terms because we have these assumptions that all of human processes that we have now will sort of need to be optimized to cope with catastrophic climate change and AI is part of that solution it's it's more efficient it's less wasteful than human decision makers or human structures or processes and so the drive to then optimize these processes using computer technology, uh, using AI, uh, is is left unquestioned. But uh, I do think the tide turns a bit. Like I, I, I think increasingly the discussions around Bitcoin focus on environment, prob probably because it's the most obvious. But I would like to think that in coming years we'll see more criticism along the lines that you've articulated today, Benedetta, because I think there is an increasing awareness that there are costs associated with optimising some of this technology. I mean, Naomi Klein did write about this in her book, This Changes Everything, where she writes about potential um, uses of technology to do things like block out the sun as a way of, of limiting climate change. And that's obviously more direct. But if we start to rely so heavily on networked computers, I think it's only a matter of time before um, you know, activist civil society academics like mm. yourself start to ponder these questions in more detail and, and can 
give us a true sense of the cost, not just the potential benefit and how we can weigh those things up. Uh, and that we may not need to optimise everything, that in fact there may be systems for which human participation is better mm. um, and then th that contributes to a more critical understanding of tech, which I think could only be a good thing personally. The, the other point thing. that strikes me, particularly trying to bring today's discussion and yesterday's panel together was this sense that actually saying technology will save us is kind of like saying the future is going to be in the future. Um, yeah. And we do nothing. It's an enabler yeah. and you just let that happen as if just let it rip and we'll get to where we want to be. I, I think I'm a, I'm a big fan of parameters, guardrails and red lines as we move forward. And I think one of the things which you've put forward really compellingly is that if you if you want a model for a technology solution to climate, you also need to place parameters around the technology that doesn't, that at least calculates the cost benefit of going down this path, right? So there would be a very different world if the data centers were powered by renewables, I assume. Um, or located in know, other places, you know, yeah, that's part of absolutely. it too. Because you can offset these costs if they're, if they're borne by, by the powerless. That's part of it too. Absolutely. Like water is one of the biggest issues. We have data centers in Utah. We have in Australia, you know, like with drought that are con a constant. And yet, even if you read uh, DeepMind's um, publicity and um, like on their website, you see that they say that cool and cooling down data centers is one of the biggest challenge they have. So, you know, oh, I mean, all these discussions, again, are, are so interesting when you look at the climate emergency and actually probably they help um, setting the, the agenda in a way that is more towards the public interest. But I want to give you a very quick example because it's something that really, I think, pushed me to, towards this book really hard and pushed me towards wanting to finish it uh, in time for COP. And it was the fact that like the, the only, and this is also something that I think we should argue for, the only longitudinal study that has been done on the cost, so the carbon emission generated by training one algorithm, okay, one algorithm. And I'm talking about a very common kind of language, um, language processing system that is like the one that Google Translate use, okay? So training one of these algorithms according to the scientists that are based at um, the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, okay, produces 284 tons of carbon emission, 284. Now, when I read the data, and I'm a political economist, I'm obsessed with data, I said, okay, how can we make you know, an understanding of this. So this is the equivalent of the average consumption of an average American car in one year, right? Okay? Mm. And it's also equivalent, and I did the maths, and if you're interested in the book, there is all these maths that I did every day, and I had so many engineers checking because I couldn't believe what I was writing. Um, it, like, if you take a flight between London and Rome, the carbon footprint is roughly 234 kilograms. If you take a flight, um, between London and New York, your carbon footprint is 100, it's 1,000 kilograms. If you train an algorithm, the carbon footprint is 284,000 kilograms. So, you know, this conversation needs to be started because when, I, when they, they tell me, oh, we're doing everything we can, well, you know, we have a huge problem here and uh, we know very well that we are on track for a carbon footprint of the overall tech industry that is about 40% of the entire consumption. So we need to act fast, right? And, and I actually proposed a variety of solutions because I actually believe in solutions. And I think that, and I'm pragmatic enough to think that we need to really collaborate 
with all stakeholders involved and trying to find a solution that is you know, for the best. And uh, I think I would really start with, for example, um, making it compulsory um, in every kind of um, AI-powered um, solution, AI-powered application, to state in a very transparent way the carbon emission, right, for the production. So carbon points. Exactly. Mm. So how much it was used for the training? And how much it's used in terms of the mineral resources used, in terms of you know everything um, for the application, you know the kind of computational power. If you use it on mobile, you spend much more carbon emission. If you use it uh, at home, it's less consuming. So these are things that also citizens need to be aware of. Hey, then, I'm going to have to stop us because we've got a very hard 45 minutes. We normally have this for an hour, and if you've enjoyed this discussion. We do it every fortnight and we post um, burning platforms up on all the places you get a pod. So I'm really sorry we can't keep going anymore, but that was a fantastic discussion. So thanks so much. Um, thanks, And um, thanks, Lizzie. We better let these guys get back to their conference. That was Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded at the NetThing 2021 conference on Friday, November 5. Burning Platforms is produced by Jennifer Macy on Gadigal land. Always will be. Stay safe and talk in a fortnight.